Are you ready to make a difference in the lives of others? If so, then you should consider becoming a recovery coach. Recovery coaches are trained to help people in recovery, seeking recovery, or struggling with addiction. They provide support, guidance, and resources to help people on their recovery journey. CCAR Training is the leading provider of recovery coach training programs. Our programs are designed to teach you the skills and knowledge, what we call the science, while giving you an understanding of your own art needed to be a successful recovery coach. We offer a variety of training options, most offered online. If you're interested in becoming a recovery coach or just learning more, I encourage you to visit our website or contact us today. We would be happy to answer any questions you have and help you get started on your journey to becoming a recovery coach. We hope you'll visit us at www.addictionrecoverytraining.org to learn more. Are you in the recovery field and looking to expand your knowledge of the many pathways to recovery? Do you want to network with the nation's leading recovery leaders? If so, then the Multiple Pathways of Recovery Conference is for you. CCAR, Recovery Iowa, and the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services are bringing the message of multiple pathways to our friends in the Midwest. Join us August 21st through the 23rd at the Embassy Suites in Des Moines, Iowa for the National Recovery Conference, where we share and educate one another about the many different pathways, methods, practices, programs, and belief systems recoveries can use to enhance their recovery journey and sustain long-term recovery. Whether it's a 12-step, secular, a spiritual religious modality, medication-assisted recovery, or wellness-based and sober active communities, we've got you covered. At NPRC, you'll have the opportunity to connect with the recovery community, broaden your knowledge of the multiple pathways, and be refreshed in your journey of recovery, whatever that may be. So don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. Tickets are on sale now at ccarconference.org. That's ccarconference.org. The Multiple Pathways to Recovery Conference, the National Recovery Conference, where all pathways to recovery meet. This conference brought to you by CCAR, Recovery Iowa, paid for by State Opioid Response Funds, the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services Bureau of Substance Abuse, the Sub-Award from the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Join us on the Recovery Matters podcast, where we celebrate the power of resilience and explore multiple pathways to recovery. We talk to people with lived experience who have faced addiction and found their own pathway to healing. Their stories will inspire you to keep going, no matter where you are on your journey. Phil, I'm really excited about our guest today because we have spent a lot of time with her partner. Yes. And uh, it's always kind of fun to get the other half of some stories. Well, you two were talking before we even started. It seems like you've had this long-term relationship. We've been to each other at things. But, you know, when you care about the same people, you're automatically connected. Okay. Plus, I've attended a lot of um, state virtual meetings with, yes. with your daughter. Yes. <laughs> made an appearance. You, you've done that, too? Yeah. Yep, Lennon has appeared on many Connecticut Alcohol and Drug Policy Council meetings. I'm so out of the loop these days. I don't tell you everything. You don't tell me everything, and I don't want to know. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. I'll tell you even less. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Taylor. Thanks for having me. So this is where we say you can tell, introduce yourself to our audience and mm-hmm. tell yeah. a little bit about yourself. Um, well, my name is Taylor. I'm a person in recovery. Um, usually I say I'm an alcoholic, but I don't 
really discriminate too much on substances that I like to use or mm-hmm. have in the past. So that's uh, j- the gist of it. Yes. We really like to dive into like earliest childhood memories. Where were you born, what raised, and anything you can remember from way back? Um, I have a really good memory of my childhood. I don't know if it's a result of... That's like my sister, yeah. right? And you have a good one too, don't you? Not it. No, I'll... no more. No, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> I, so I, I went over the... I'm 57. I went over the 55 <clears throat> speed limit and sure. uh, things started to fall away. I like that, the speed limit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of it's probably just like a result of PTSD and mm-hmm. like childhood trauma, but yeah. I have a really... I have remem- memories being in diapers. Um, yeah. I remember getting my diaper changed really young. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And who changed it? Uh, I can remember my mother changing it. Oh, yeah. that's... <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, so my parents, they had met in a 12-step recovery program. Mm-hmm. Um, my father has been uh, sober since he's 18, but not really working a program, so to say. Just kind of hung around mm-hmm. the rooms. Um, I'm not sure how long my mom had been sober when my parents got together, but within three, four months, they were pregnant with me and married. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, my childhood, I have a lot of memories of two people who were struggling with their own stuff, trying to raise some kids, because then after me, they had two more, and, you know, the chaos that comes just generally with raising children. Uh, and you're outnumbered. Yes, yeah. and it was tough, and my mom was on her own a lot of it. Um, my dad was around, but not really around like my parents are still together to this day mm-hmm. and you know i think for points of my life i had a, a lot of resentment towards that so what do you mean around but not really around uh like my parents are not separated um my dad was working a lot but not in the house a lot or parenting from the couch you know my my parents didn't really share a bed or a bedroom for a long time and, you know, my mom, I remember having memories of like trying to get ready for school and her work in the morning, trying to get three kids together. And my dad is still sleeping. And she's like, you know, the, the mania that is those moments. And can you help me out? And, you know, in a half sleep, he's like, come on, guys, listen to your mom. So, um, yeah. And he had his, his own stuff, too. Um, a lot of rage in the house, things like that. So we moved around a lot. My parents would get separated often and not live under the same roof. And we would move in with my grandmother here and there. Or I remember we had a home that was um, provided to us by one of the women's shelters in Middletown. So a lot of instability. So they were in recovery the whole time? Or would you say they were? Substance free? They were substance. Well, my mother was probably like, I remember being talked to at a young age, like me and your dad don't drink. And not being told much more than that. I did have, expo- like most of my family is either in recovery or has been. My aunts, my uncles, cousins, everybody. So I, I kind of knew about being substance free. Mm-hmm. And then I remember at one point, maybe I was like seven or eight, there were Zimas in the fridge. And I were, knew that M- Zima. Zimas totally used <laughs> And, and mom um, telling me that this is an, an adult beverage uh-huh. um, and kind of connecting like, well, this is new. Mm-hmm. And um, and knowing, not knowing much more than that. I mean, I can sort of yeah. think back and try to put more together than I could really understand at that point. 
And you also talked about the rage issues. So what did that look like? My dad is someone who, and, and bless his heart, he can go zero to 100 really quick. And mm. and, and zero basically being, you know, sitting on the couch and 100 being like taking the TV off the wall and throwing it across the room, like that kind of rage. Um, he didn't necessarily get like physical with us. I mean, there, he got scary enough, especially once I got older um, and could talk back more. There were a lot of really pretty traumatic events events that I could never really see most fathers doing to their daughters. Or, right. Yeah. And I, I had, I would say, I've just, why ping for me is that's been one of the things over 30 plus years of recovery that I've always been trying to work on my anger. And I think it did boil into rage and not that I would physically hurt someone, but right. the emotional damage is yeah. hard to recoup from. And you'll, you know? we'll always, I'll always remember the things that were said to me, the things that cut really deep. There's only one time that I ever... You made me go sit outside, go out, you made me leave the house. Oh, I like that. Yeah, she take, he, um, he tripped over, a, I don't know if it was for the dog or the baby, the baby game mm. with a plate of food. <laughs> and... Um, and and yeah, he just, and he wasn't directing his anger at anybody, but it was a kind of anger that I'd never seen and didn't yeah. think it was good for the kids to be around. Yeah. But I relate to what you're saying because my siblings, I'm the youngest of five and I mm -hmm. came 14 years later and they would tell me that, you know, my dad would, you know, beat them over an infraction for a reason. But when I was growing up, I wished that he had spanked me because the his rage and the words that came out to me felt far worse than if he yeah. laid hands on me. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, when that yeah. happens, when it when it goes anger, you know what anger is? Mad, you know what mad is? But rage is rage is scary. Can't so talk. Scary. You couldn't talk him off a ledge. Yeah. And it just could. You just have to wait it out. Mm -hmm. Um, and like I have much more understanding for it it in general now and a lot more compassion for my father and i know he has his own mm -hmm. unhealed trauma his own childhood stuff that um i would you know love for him to work through i don't know if if he ever will um but i've definitely accepted him for who he is today and and, and love him dearly and i don't blame him today like i used to yeah yeah the old saying sticks and stones will break my bones but names will never hurt me is so wrong yeah, <laughs> it's right. Yeah. yeah, but that's the way we were trained. Bones heal, bruises heal, yeah. but the words stay in your. And pain. it takes a lot of work to work through that that deep stuff, that those internal wounds that are. So, yeah. what were some like the? Oh, I mean, what was an incident like that you were called that you that sticks in your head? I it was probably like fifteen, sixteen, yeah. and remember when he like spat in my face yeah and then you know called me a promiscuous you know oh, curse word yeah. um it cut really deep you know especially and and he's not again very good at like articulating i'm sorry for this yeah and we would go maybe a month without speaking a word to each other just like cold silent silent and then one day he'd be like I'd like to take you to dinner this weekend. I'd like to take you shopping yeah. and and make up for it that way. And and while that was sweet, I mean, I understood what he was doing and he couldn't really. And it, it was only one time I remember being drunk 
when I was about 18 and my drunk dialed my father and um, just kind of like let it out there. Like, you did this to me. And uh, and he was super receptive towards it. And I've like, I've never heard you say, I love you. And he was like, well, I, I do love you and I'm sorry. And it was the first time I heard my father say, I'm sorry. Well, at least you weren't so drunk that you didn't remember it. You were no, kind of yeah. black so that you remembered yeah. it. Oh, that, there's so many emotions with that, with fathers and daughters and fathers and children. And, yep. and um, um, you know, they don't go, that just is. Yeah. I remember standing in the driveway of my parents' home at age 26, and they were moving to Florida. That was the first time my dad told me he loved me. Yeah. yeah. And I know he loved all of his kids. Right. Passionately. But we're all, we all either are destined to repeat the, whether we want to refer to it as the sins of the father. Right. Or mindfully change it of how we interact with the next generation. Yeah. And I, I, nothing hurts me more than recognizing the moments when I've perpetuated yeah. one of my parents' faulty behaviors. Mm-hmm. Well, my sister often talks about uh, my dad, who was, he was prone to anger. Um, I don't think he, and he could say some things that were hurtful, but overall he was a, he was a good, kind-hearted man. There was one time my sister worked at a lifeguarding job and she was at a summer camp and the kid got picked up late and so she had to ride her bike home in the dark which was a few miles on a busy road my dad was furious um, furious I, yeah so yeah. She, my sister had this reaction she said if i'm gonna get in so much trouble for being good god damn it I'm going to get in trouble for being bad. Yeah. That's kind of like when she took this little turn, like mm-hmm. diverted off the path. So so you just don't, those bursts of anger are never helpful. Mm-hmm. They, they're, they're never helpful, no. things said in anger. And I've gotten better in, in as I've gotten older and, you know, yeah. working the program, lots of therapy. Yeah. It's been easier for me to set boundaries when he reaches those moments yeah. and saying, this is, this is not something I'm going to tolerate, entertain, engage with. We can talk later, but I'm I'm not going to do this right now. Do you say that to him? Yeah. Because uh, actually, though, it's funny you mention that because recovery coach performance support that I do in each of the centers mm-hmm. is about boundaries. Mm-hmm. So I would ask you exactly, okay, how do you manage that? And you did it by telling him your truth mm-hmm. without blame or judgment. Right. So that I can't do this right now. Yep. So... Well, we can talk later after you've calmed down and leave it at that. Yep. Yeah. And it's worked out really well. Yeah. He doesn't, he might get a little bit more mad at me, but he doesn't get more hurtful. No. And he, he pretty, he does really respect that usually when I set that boundary. Or because that's your truth. Right? It's hard to argue with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone's got to be the adult sometimes. <laughs> so we were, we were talking right before podcast started about, um, when you started first use, because I was saying there's this trend of age 11 that I hear again and again. Um, so I'm kind of curious, as you talked about the dynamic between your parents and moving back and forth, you said you were around age 13. Yeah, when I started smoking weed. Um, and I remember being, before smoking weed for the first time, being so against it. I was very afraid. I was definitely sort of like brainwashed by the dare 
you know, program of the 90s, like, mm-hmm. don't smoke pot, you'll turn into, you know, the, the flat girl on the couch and... Um, Laying in the gutter. <laughs> yeah. So um, I remember, like, the, the year before, I was first being petrified of it. And then I'm not too sure what happened in eighth grade that made me switch a little bit. I could maybe pinpoint a couple things, but who really knows? Um and started smoking pot and, and smoking pot fairly heavily, like me and my girlfriends, who all kind of came from sort of similar situations and were always kind of getting into trouble together, but um, really helping each other through things, too. At the same time, we just really loved the feeling of getting high. Mm-hmm. Loved it. So, And then it wasn't until I was um, the end of my freshman year in high school that I started drinking. Mm-hmm. Had you, you know, what kept you from drinking in middle school? It wasn't one. It wasn't accessible. The people I was hanging around with weren't drinking. It wasn't something that we were seeking mm-hmm. at that point. Um, but things were different in high school um, when we started hanging out with older people and the older boys, and they were drinking and they were really cool. And I, you know, I started um, seeing my high school boyfriend who I was infatuated with. It was a very codependent related like we were living together by my sophomore year and he drank and he smoked cigarettes so I started drinking and smoking cigarettes so how do you end up living with a boyfriend (laughs) in high school well I think you can can kind of like my home life was unstable Mm -hmm. um and my parents really didn't set a lot of their own boundaries expectations discipline like if I said, even at a very young age, you know, my mom was dealing with a lot of her own depression and being able to put up a fight was hard with kids. And that even I, I remember being in kindergarten saying, I don't feel like going to school today. And she would be like, that's OK. So and it grew into that into high school. And I started seeing my boyfriend who was older. And at the time, he had a two month old when we got together. So I know it's it's crazy when I've. <laughs> Out of curiosity, how much older? He was 18. I was oh, 15. Okay. So it wasn't, you know, we were in high school, um, but older, just open, different experience. I was a little baby freshman. Mm-hmm. And my mom, bless, thank goodness she did this. She said, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to stop this from happening. And I know I definitely can't stop you from having sex. So I want you to get on the pill. This is what we're going to do. And um, and it was kind of the same thing with drinking. It's like I knew I couldn't stop you from drinking. And she had lost her 18-year-old brother um, from a, presumably a drunk driving accident. It was a car accident. And she just said, I don't care what time of night it is. Just call me and I will pick you up. Just don't sneak out and don't not tell me where you are. Don't keep secrets from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating for me when you're talking about knowing that you didn't have boundaries, that you could kind of just go do what you wanted to do, that your parents weren't good at setting those. I was trying to think about my situation, and I think my sister and I both lived in this house where I don't know that they were ever said, yeah, but we knew we couldn't do it. We I don't know if they were self-imposed or if... I don't think my dad ever... If it came from anywhere, it came from my mother, who might have said you're not going to drink until you're old enough to or but I don't know we had that in our head so anytime I was like drinking 
as a teenager, I knew I was doing something wrong. Yeah. But I did it anyway. Yeah. But I, always, but I don't know if that was ever actually said to us. Oh, my rules were sad, clear. Sad and sad Over. and sad. And... But you broke them anyway. Yeah. After a while. At 17. At yeah. 17. So I was, I, was a, I was a late bloomer, but like I couldn't wear the color black. I couldn't wear dungarees. Got my eyebrows plucked in seventh grade by my hairstylist sister. My dad called me a hooker. Like there was a bazillion rules. Mm-hmm. Bazillion rules. Yeah. That was one of the only, just tell me where you're going to be. Just be transparent with me. And the, the first time I got drunk was the, I lied to her about where I was, you know, me and the girls. But mm-hmm. I'm at this person's house and same oh, thing, yeah. you know, down the line. And one of our friend's moms called the other and we were, this all blew up in our face and we were sleeping in this party house. It was, it was a huge party. It was, they were carting people at the door. And because my boyfriends was friends with these people, we were able to get in at 15. But, um, waking up first hangover and my mom's like, where are you, Taylor? I'm like, I'm at Jenny's house. She said, try again. And I went, what mom? I can't hear you. Click. She got together with one of my other girlfriend's moms, and they drove around looking for us until um, we finally like came clean and had them pick us up. And they said, I would have let you go if you had just been honest with me. Wow. Yeah. So you're dating someone with a baby, too. That's got to be. Uh, yeah. Um, it's interesting. I'm sure there's a lot for me to unpack there. Therapy. <laughs> Of why I thought that was ideal, but I totally embraced being a 15-year-old stepmom. Completely embraced it. Um, wow. They had, I, looking back, it's like, why did I? I was just so self-righteous, right? Because I would communicate on his behalf with his, the mother of his child who could, I know. <laughs> no, no, I'm nodding because not the same scenario, but very close. I yeah. the same thing. Yeah. But I. I could almost reason with her better mm-hmm. and there wasn't, you know, the history of whatever they went through before. So she preferred to communicate with me too. So she, I would get home from school on Wednesdays and his daughter would be getting dropped off at five o'clock and I would be there to greet her until my ex-boyfriend came home from work and shower. And then we'd all play together as this little makeshift family. Um, yeah. How old was this, the mom? She was his age, yeah. He had a really tough time when we broke again. We were very, very codependent. And um, when we broke up, he basically stopped seeing his daughter. And a couple years went by, and he eventually signed over rights, and she was adopted by her stepfather. So he he doesn't have a relationship with her. And for me to move on, I needed to cut out every aspect of him in my life. Um, it was... It took me like a solid year. And I remember telling my friends, whatever you see, whatever you hear, don't tell me. I need to move on from this. And it was it was tough. Yeah. So were you together all through high school? Uh, we broke up towards the end of my senior year. And we dabbled. That was like really when we broke up. But we there were still relations post my senior year. Yeah. Gotcha. But you graduated. Yes, I did. But on the skin of my teeth, I uh, wasn't supposed to. I So come my sophomore year, drinking had like taken over my life. I was not going to, I was a truant, stopped going to school, was drinking at home. And um, like come November, the school was like, so you're not 
going to be a junior at this point. You could repeat your sophomore year, drop out. And those weren't really options for me. Um, So my mom's from Texas. I moved in with my cousin in Fort Worth, who was sober for several years at this point. I'm not sure how long, because I, at that point in time, wasn't interested in her recovery and what that looked like. And, And she could look at what was going on really easily and say, okay, we have some sort of substance use problem here. And I thought I had a going to school problem. So she um, was like, okay, you're going to go to Alateen. And I'd basically be dragged to AA because she was going to AA. And I remember really identifying with these people and their stories, but uh, couldn't even fathom abstinence. It wasn't even in my vocabulary. Um, But so I was there from like January to the end of the school year, went on to my junior year back home in Connecticut And then in February, my brother and father were involved in a really severe gasoline explosion where my brother almost died. He was in a coma for a month and my mom was in the hospital with him um, for the next four months. My dad was okay. He was only in the hospital for two weeks. Most of his burns came from trying to put out my brother's fire. But any normalcy that we had in the house was gone. At that point, because my, my my brother needed care. Like, he's a very evident burn survivor, and he's we're so grateful that he's alive, but he needed a lot of care post that point in time, and that became my mother's life. So, Taylor, it's <laughs> like too much. <laughs> too much, so. So there's a little trauma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but just tell me about, what, what was the situation where the gasoline exploded? What was it? Yeah, so my, my dad owns a tree business. And at the point in time, we lived in Marlboro and we lived on a huge piece of property, six and a half acres. Wow. And in the back, he was like splitting wood back there one February day. And my brother got off the bus at school. He was 10 years old at the time and was like, I want to go hang out with my dad. And growing up in the woods, you know, we, there was a fire in a barrel. And that's not abnormal for right living in the six and my brother jordan said you make it bigger my dad poured gasoline on it again this is a normal occurrence for living in the middle of the woods and the fumes ignited and the canister exploded and my brother was wearing a a nylon coat so it sunk into his skin and but again we lived on this big piece of property so there was a little pond right next to where this happened so my dad Got my brother in the pond, put out the fire. <laughs> and you were, he was 10, so you were 16. 16. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And how's your brother today? Awesome. <laughs> oh, that's a good answer. He's so awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, still, like you can tell, he's he's a burn survivor. Mm-hmm. Um but God, he's got the one of the greatest hearts. Like I, I get emotional about my brother. Good, because um, he's just an amazing person. And it took a, a long time for him to get to a place of acceptance and and self love. Like there was a point, you know, for he didn't want to do picture day, you know, after the accident. And now it's like nothing stops him. He's um, in MMA. So he trains really hard throughout the year. The kid will run like 14 miles every day and then go train. And women love him. And it's like I've, I've gone to him 
we've traveled together, gone to like music festivals together, and the women to him. And he, you know, he has serious girlfriends and he lives like, he, and he lives this independent life in Cape Cod. And we're just, I'm so proud of him. And everything that he has overcome is just such an inspiration. Yeah. Okay. I'm, it's up here. That's like, yeah. I usually left speechless, but anyway, let's, um, so you're 16 so as it's happening. So. And this is just so one I'm of them. 16 at this point. Junior year. Junior. No wonder why we go get high. Right. So with my stuff. mom in the hospital with him and my dad not being at home often, yeah. my home became the party house. Yeah. And I was throwing parties every weekend. And, and not that my house was necessarily like a clean home before. My dad has some hoarding stuff. Uh, we destroyed the house basically at that oh. point. It was destroyed. You know, some years later it ended up, it's condemned. I didn't, yeah, yeah. It, it's not good. Um, and it wasn't good. So then I ended up moving out when I was 18. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you graduated high school? Graduated because I think they just felt bad for me at that point. Um, I had I did have some absences and had to go to these truancy meetings. And my principals were like, well, you had a lot going on. So you can get out of here. What did you do after high school? I so. I would have loved to have gone to college, I, um, but I didn't even know how to fill out a college application. I had no skills. I wasn't like, let's go look at some schools or I can help you fill out it up. That wasn't things that happened in my house. So I was like, I don't know, I guess I'm 18 now. What do we do? I guess we go get a job somewhere. And what skills do I have? Like I'm a young girl and can talk. So (laughs) I'll go get a waitressing job. So I went and applied at Chili's. So I was working there and I met people who were a lot like me. Like the restaurant industry is kind of filled with dis- lots of dysfunctional people <laughs> who are also... Party s- people. Right. Party people are socially open. Yeah. And I was exposed to this. We like leveled up my my, my drinking career. And I drank alcoholically from from the beginning, but now it's like sort of like this adult way we work and then we go get a drink after work like refined people and but you can get as drunk as you want because you're over 18 now and you don't have the same and the people i'm hanging out with don't live with their parents and stuff so i'm with adults now and i'm drinking how partying adults drink yeah Yeah. and then i was 21 when maybe 20 21 when i was then exposed to cocaine because we drink like fish, don't sleep a lot. You can, one, use cocaine to keep the party going. And um, if you need to sober up a little bit, cocaine apparently yeah. helps you. You leveled up. Leveled up again. <laughs> yeah. And that was kind of most of my 20s was like, what's this drug like? And what what does that do for me? Or here's a downer for an upper and vice versa. Right. Lots of experimenting. Yeah. We think of it as leveling up at the time, but we're leveling down. Actually, yeah, isn't it? No, I, uh, I, and I just didn't have the ability to think of it like that. Or did I? And I would so I in between all that, I would go and take classes at MCC and mm-hmm. try to get some credits and figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Right. Right. Um, in balancing that with my work life, my party life. Like, I still haven't finished my bachelor's because I've just been so sporadic with school and trying to piece together normalcy that I didn't have the tools to 
piece together. Let me just say 28 years to get yeah. my bachelor's. So, so no shame in however. I just signed it. up for school again. So we'll see. Good for you. We'll see. I would, girl, I would, uh, I would take a class, get pregnant, have a baby, take a few years off. So right. be, be ready for the second child now that you're rolling and roll. We're getting back on the pill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how does this all progress towards recovery? So my 20s were kind of just like that roller coaster. Like, you know, my life would spiral out of control because of drugs and alcohol. I'd muster up whatever courage, you know, self-worth. I don't even know what to call it to sign up for classes. And then the cycle would repeat for years. I'd get into a relationship that was also codependent, abusive, that kind of stuff. And after my last really abusive relationship, I was really just a shell of a human. And I was just so desperate to not feel depressed that I was sought out therapy. And my therapist was absolutely amazing. And with some heavy work with her for a few months, again, went back to school, got this internship. I'm getting straight A's. Like I'm in the gym all the time. I am just crushing it at life. And what do I do to repay myself, but drink my life into the gutter? And, and it happened really fast. That summer, I was a complete waste case. I ended up going to work wasted, doing drugs behind the bar. Um, it, it was just insanity. And I lost my job that October because you can't really be the drunk bartender for too long. And at that point, my reputation around town was the drunk bartender, so I couldn't find a job. For several months, I was living, paying my bills by the graces of my friends, eating by the graces of my friends, literally bringing me bags of food so I could eat. And it was just a really dark several months. And you talked a lot about the codependence with the first relationship yep. and then abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about you and all that? That probably didn't come until recovery. I mean, yeah. there were some yeah. things that I learned along the way. Like right. I couldn't make sense out of things that don't make sense. And if I in engage in that, how could someone do this to me? How could you do this to someone you love? I'm just going to drive myself even more crazy when the actual goal is trying to distance myself from this situation right. and, and getting to that place of this is what I need to do to move on were things that I learned before recovery. Um, and then in recovery, a lot of the things that I was able, like it's easy for me to look at a, a, a man who hurt me and go, this is what you did to me and this is what's wrong with you. But then in a four step, what is it about me that continues to attract these types of people? Am I the problem here? Um, and I was a big, huge part of that problem. Yeah. Hmm. Was your codependent relationship abusive at all? Would you say? Um, or the first one? Not it not, not I laugh with strong response. Yeah. Not in a way that I thought I was going to die, but not in a way, but also in a way that wasn't necessarily healthy. Like there was shoving and stuff. And I remember being like dragged out of a party and he'd throw me over his shoulder and throw me into the car and then be spy doing ninety and back roads of Marlboro. Um so it was crazy. It was crazy. Um wow. but not where I feared I feared differently for my life. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I just, she and I are looking at each other because I mean, the story is so familiar. Yeah. My story is back roads along the yeah. River Rocky Hill. With a, yeah. much, with a much older man. Yeah. You have no food, no job. Yep. So I, at that point in time, I'm, I just think I've been dealt a bad hand at life. I can't really look at the circumstances of my life and go, maybe this has to do with drinking. I think what I need is a man. So I, <laughs> of course. So I, he works for me. Right, right. <laughs> and so I tried this online dating thing that all the kids were trying at the time and still are. Which one is that? It was on Bumble. Uh, yeah. The Bumble? You don't know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it was fun because you can just swipe, swipe, swipe. And you're like, good looking, not good looking. Ooh, cute, whatever. Um, but I had never done that before. Mm-hmm. And I met up with this guy and had my friends come out and meet me because I knew this is not someone I wanted to sleep with or whatever. I wanted to be safe because I knew I was going to have a drink with him. What I did know about my drinking at that point in time was I don't have the right formula yet to control myself when I drink. I don't know what I'm really capable of doing mm-hmm. when I start drinking. Mm-hmm. Cannot safely predict the outcome. No, right. I have no idea what could occur. But what ended up happening um, was he actually roofied me. And I wound up in, yeah, I wound up in the hospital. And my, the worst part, this is what did it for me, was that my friends didn't believe me because they're like, you just blacked out and don't know what what you did and um and that was when I could really look at my alcoholism or I couldn't even call it alcoholism yet I maybe had a problem with alcohol so let's try some more controlled drinking so then I was doing coke sober and, and then, uh, other things and then okay let's try having one drink and not being able to have just one drink so the last night I drank I remember t- I was going to a party and I told, um, I told myself I'm not going to drink that night. And I couldn't leave my house without a road soda. And still told myself that night that I'm sober because I just drank on the way to the party, but not at the party. That was made sense to me at the time. But then, of course, what hap- the same thing that always happens happened was I was up all night doing coke and getting wasted. And it's 6 a.m. and I feel like shit. And I'm like, here we are again. When is my life going to be something I'm proud of and happy in? When am I going to have money in my bank account? When? All of the things. And um, that was the last time I drank. When was that? That was May 19th, 2019. Yeah. And so how did you start your recovery and how do you maintain it? So that day, at that point, I was like, Let's try Bumble again. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, the the definition of insanity, right? So, and I ended up talking to a few guys who were clean and sober and had long-term sobriety. And I found that attractive, at least. And I'm kind of telling one of these guys this conundrum I'm in. And he could see it for what it was. He's like, why don't you try going to a meeting? And I said, well... I don't think I'm powerless over alcohol and I can't get down with the whole God thing. And the second I said powerless, I was like, who the fuck are you kidding? Like, <laughs> who are you kidding? You're not powerless over alcohol. So I'm like, all right, let me let me check this out. So I looked up a meeting and I found one 
in Windsor called Sunlight of the Spirit and had no idea what that meant, but it sounded mm -hmm. like it's what I needed. And I went to this meeting, super old timer meeting. And, um, you know, I raised my hand when they asked if we have any newcomers. And I said, my name is Taylor and I don't know what I need, but I, I need some help. And one of them looked at me dead in my eyes. I'll never forget it. And he said, we'll take care of you, kid. Mm -hmm. And I just felt for the first time in my life, like I was going to be okay. Yeah. And I was in the right place at the exact right time. Yeah. And so then I threw myself into a, an AAIOP. And I was like, this is awesome. Um, these people have the answers that I've been looking for. I still don't have the answers, but they have them mm -hmm. somehow and I need to find them. So I'd go to like three to five meetings a day and I would just bounce around the state. And that's how I got sober and stayed sober. I thought for sure you were going to say you went on your first date with that guy to an English <laughs> meeting. Oh, he actually, he was from Connecticut, but he was living somewhere else yeah. at the time. Um, but he was someone I did like, I guess, bounce AA stuff. It, all the romanticism went out at that point. He was that someone. Was, yeah. That was how we began our dating relationship. Yeah. I love that you said AAIOP, yeah. which is Alcoholics Anonymous Inpatient. Intensive Outpatient. But that's not a formal treatment program. No. Did you ever go to a no, formal treatment? Never. I and could have benefited one from one, I'm pretty sure. Well, I, I didn't go to one, and Me you ever got to one. So a lot of times... Think about it. I missed out. I know. Especially if I could pick the one. The <laughs> right, right, right. You know, or, or I I missed out on a mugshot, too. Sometimes I feel like... Well, you think about how how much pain you'd have to be to go into it. But you can yeah. go to a treatment now if you want it. I want to go to Eric Clapton's and have tea pick. That's awesome. Taylor and I are going to be So you went to a lot of Alcoholics Anonymous mm -hmm. meetings for... Um, but now that I have the wonderful gifts that recovery has given me and a job and be, uh, that I love and being employable and, you know, I have a relationship and I have a toddler and it's, I have not found the balance yet of how to balance going to meetings, attending meetings regularly with the rest of my life. I think that's what really shifted for me with, because the core of my recovery was 12 step as well, was when we had our first child and I first started bringing the baby to meetings mm -hmm. and then that wasn't feeling so comfortable because a lot of smoke yeah. stuff still around back then. Yeah. And then Phil bringing the meeting into our house. Um, so yeah. we had a meeting at that house awesome. for a while. That's a good idea actually. Then when we had the second child, um, just trying to find a place for the family to fit in, and that wasn't always necessary. Sometimes a little messy, right? Yeah. To be around young children. Um, I think that's what really opened me up to the multiple pathways of recovery and figuring out different seasons of life require different tools, different pathways. Totally what, agree. What you're navigating. and Yeah. Like I'm, I'm still in therapy and I, I'm with that, I was able to find that same therapist who basically helped save my life when I was getting out of a uh, really bad relationship. Mm -hmm. And she's just as wonderful, if not even more wonderful. Um, and the, the work that we're doing is, has just had profound effects on my life. Yeah. Um, and I still have a sponsor, still sponsor women. Yeah. Um, so I, I stay at least connected to AA, a foot in AA, but my regular attendance meetings. Mm -hmm. yes. Well, what I always had the question about, you know, the people would preach to us to say, if you don't, if you don't keep your recovery first, you'll lose everything. I agree with that. But to them, recovery was, attendance of 12-step meetings was mandatory. 
And no one was ever able to answer the question. We were raising four kids and, you know, we didn't get sober to be absent from our family and our kids. So even Bill Wilson called out a spiritual kindergarten that you set a really solid base and we've built a life beyond measure. I'm 35 years in recovery now and my attendance at meetings is last few years has been non-existence. I mean, there's been online meetings and things like that, but I still think my recovery is as strong as ever, you know? Well, you're still living in fellowship with people in recovery, and that just takes many forms too. Yeah. And you know, and well, you, but I was also brainwashed that your work is not your recovery, right? And I was yeah. like, well, and I and they say you you have to have a work life balance, and to me, it's all about life. My work is my right. life. It's my life. So it's all one. It, it it's not. I can't compartmentalize like that. That's right. not for me. I can't say. See cars, my work. Okay, I work here from nine to five. I clock out. Now I'm at home, and it's my home life. It all gets blended together because it's all right. one thing. And I think that's what the twelve step is really all about: is is practicing these principles in your affairs. Like, yeah. how how many times can you really do the steps, mm-hmm. and and something new is going to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think again, that's a point where you can level up mm-hmm. your method of recovery, your mm-hmm. your, your pathway, and Right now, ther- therapy is serving me really, really, really well. And what I was, um, I went to a lot of therapy too early yeah. in recovery to kind of to discover not so much, you know, we talk a lot about the past, but it was to figure out how I thought about things. Right. And I, can I think about things differently that's more helpful right. and more healthy in a lot of ways? And I have been able to do that, you know? And, and I, the, the Therapy that we're doing right now is called um, internal family systems therapy, yeah. which is the the idea that as your self being is made up of like different parts. And for me, a lot of my parts can operate in extremes mm-hmm. or complete deprivations. And finding a the idea of this therapy is to find a balance in all of these things. And the function of those parts are they doing? They're what they're really trying to do is function in a way that they think is serving me. And sometimes it's protecting another part of me. And usually that's that like little tailor in here that has yep. some unhealed stuff and, and needs to be seen and loved and, and, and heard. And it can sometimes bash with that AA brainwashing mind that's yep. like, no, that's your disease and it wants you dead and and you need to run from that part. And I don't always need to run from that part. I, I need to almost hug the cactus mm-hmm. and and see what it's really trying to do for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that completely. You know, growing up, um, all the... So because I was so young, there was mostly... All my siblings were almost on the verge of being an adult or an adult. And so each one of them left me by the time I was eight years old, right? And, and then... Um, in my 30s, um, you know, into 40s, both parents passed away and, and two siblings and then another sibling passed away. So as my kids have grown and graduated college, they've moved far away. So all of that is such a trigger for me. Uh, but I 
don't drop to the depths of where it would take me because I have recovery tools, but man, it still keeps layering. So I think we often, without somebody to ask you good questions, Mm -hmm. whether that's a therapist or a recovery coach, just to get you realizing those connections and that you might not be responding because of the moment. You're responding because you're that that moment is bringing back all those other rare moments that you never really fully resolve. Activating. So I'm wondering, as a, as a mom, mm, um, I leveled up in my fears. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. So how do you, I've always felt like I have to really purposefully do things different. I have to be thinking about doing Very things Very intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it mm-hmm. came, I didn't think having a child I'd be as worrisome as I am as a mother um I am constantly uh, we call it like hypervigilance like whether it's I'm I'm afraid of the world and that can also be a a, a result of the re- religious upbringing I have we won't even get there um but I can be like I will be looking over my shoulder in a grocery store and a parking lot when I'm putting her in her car seat it's not things like I'm not afraid of like germs in the house Mm -hmm. but I'm afraid that something terrible can happen to her and another thing that I've been working through for therapy but uh, in 12-step recovery I remember like in in, in pregnancy even dealing with these things and one of the things that served me best was my my spiritual condition and and really asking for these things to be removed so I'm really working a really heavy six and seven step Um, And that has yielded me consistent results and being easier to combat those fears or them not being so common. But they they definitely. Yeah. I mean, the first time I put my faith into practice, I didn't even know I wouldn't have called it a faith back then, was being pregnant with a first child, terrified that something horrible was happening inside my body that would lead to not having a beautiful, healthy baby that I had to pray every day was my way to yep. calm the anxiety. And then, and you know, works. over time, and then I think as they grow away from you to, to reflect on the fact that we don't control their journey through life is freaking hard. I can't imagine. <laughs> I think I about, about that part. Yeah. I, I think about it all the time, though. I But one of the things that does, when, like when I was pregnant, I... I was really excited about having a girl. And then one day had the thought like, oh my God, I'm having a girl. (laughs) And being so riddled with, what if she has the same experience as I do? What if she grows up feeling the way that I did? Mm -hmm. And being so overwhelmed by that fact and looking at the life that TJ and I have built today, I'm so proud and thankful Mm -hmm. and have a lot more faith that she's gonna be okay even if she ends up being an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. like both Glennon has never seen drinking, Mm -hmm. period. Um, She has no exposure to it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I think she has uh, a few legs up from where TJ and I were as kids. You're talking about, I've learned not to play the what if game. You know, that's that's not helpful. Even when I facilitate the recovery coach academy, a lot of people want to go with what if, and that what if is fear-based, Yeah. right? But you could also play the what if game. What if this child grows up and is extremely well loved, which is my intention, 
you can only be sure of your intentions, right? As a parent, did, did I was a, I know I love my kids and I love them every day that all the time that we had them to the best of my ability. Was I always perfect at it? No. But my intention was to love them as best I could. Mm-hmm. I think that was always been your intention, intention too. No, I was to be perfect. Oh, I know. You have to be perfect. I don't have to be perfect. But there is well, a spirituality no, way, perfection. Way, way short of that. Well, I don't believe that for a second. But I think what you're talking to about childhood is I've learned that the way I responded was the way I responded. Mm-hmm. And there was some real strengths in the way I coped with what, what, what I was dealt. So, um, and people just respond the way they do to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, recovery is a journey of self-awareness. So I encourage you and applaud you and admire the steps you're taking to become more and more self-aware. And because as you become more and more self-aware, that's really what recovery is. Right. Right. There is no, there's no bad or good. There just is. There might be. This is a healthier decision than this one I'm going to make. So maybe I'll choose to make the healthy decision, but I might make the unhealthy one, and I'll be okay with that because I am going to eat more potato chips. You know, that's just what I'm going to do. Right. <laughs> I, could eat, just, I, I could eat. I could eat carrots, but I'm going to eat potato. Chips, I identify with that. Potato chips are delicious. Yeah. Right. So. But is that the healthiest decision right. I could make? Probably not, but I'm well aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you looking forward to in the next phase? Well, I, I just signed up for school again. Mm-hmm. So I'm ho- my thinking is, you know, I'd love to have another child mm-hmm. in the future. So, I mean, I have a very willful, high-spirited husband. <laughs> and, and child. And child. I, and my natural way of living is let's avoid some stress here mm-hmm. and i so we'd like to have a child probably in like two three years we'd also mm-hmm. like to have buy a house yeah. we'd also like to get married um so all of these things that i want to do i can't Im- imagine having an easier ability to finish school when those things are happening so my goal right now um we're gonna get this degree finally and then probably buy the house then maybe get married and then have another baby. That's the plan. How do you take care of your recovery today? My day-to-day is mm-hmm. definitely lacking. My day-to-day. Um, the first, the, the one thing I do have also is staying connected to the, pe- to the re- people that I value most in my recovery um still keeping a relationship with a sponsor and other women that really helped save my life and staying connected with my sponsees who i learn from every day um and staying con- uh, really everyone that is in my close circle of people are all in recovery so st- staying connected to them has been key um having a partner who has is so incredible in his own recovery and helping so many people it's been really helpful too not that in like he's my sponsor type of way but i need to bounce this off of you and i need mm-hmm. help kind of articulating this thought and uh, it and he's also always been so supportive like he he understands that 
it ha- it is hard to make meetings all the time, but he is always really, really encouraging. Like, I'll watch the baby tonight, go to a meeting. Um, so you say day to day is you use the term lacking. Yeah, I, th- I think so. My, what so what's what part do you think is lacking? I think again from being um, <laughs> AA brainwashed, I I would probably not get an A plus in AA today in terms of are you praying and meditating every day? Are you doing a ten step every day? Are you it, I mean, 10 step in a lot of, are you reflecting on the day? Are you making amends where you need to? But I think in terms of li- living my, a true 12 step, yeah, I think I'd get an A plus. So, so the AA taught me what we really have is a daily reprieve mm-hmm. contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Mm-hmm. So what's your spiritual condition like? I think my spiritual condition is pretty good. So then you're not lacking. Yeah. I, it, <laughs> not that I, the great thing about, you know, having Lennon and being really routine about her, mm-hmm. we say prayers every night. Oh, cool. we, we have a whole nighttime routine and, oh. and being able to pass along spirituality to her that isn't rooted in necessarily a religion. Or but, rules. Right. And just that this is here for you to just right. talk. Um has been one really helpful and it is something that we do religiously daily. Um, and that's where that came from. <laughs> and I think not, I don't always, my, my relationship with a higher power has, it's always taking twists and turns. But I think having a, a faith that works for me has been key in knowing it's something that's always there that I can turn in on and and realizing I have innate abilities that are God-given or whatever you want to call them yeah. and, and trusting those things, it, but not having to pray and meditate so desperately like I did, you know, a few years ago and not that I couldn't benefit from it, mm-hmm. but still always doing things that also um, are helping better, better myself, um, but not always in the, what I can sometimes see as the strict confines of yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think uh, spirituality too is I, I I resonate with what you're saying about desperate. I, I thought it was a, the harder you worked at it, the deeper you would get, and it's not that difficult. No. You just you no, know, you just have to let go yeah. really and just open up. And you talked about that a little bit and just let it in. Yeah. Yeah. Let it in. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this is cool. It went by fast, faster than I thought. Thanks, Taylor. Join us on the Recovery Matters podcast, where we celebrate the power of resilience and explore multiple pathways to recovery. We talk to people with lived experience who have faced addiction and found their own pathway to healing. Their stories will inspire you to keep going, no matter where you are on your journey.